everyone, and welcome to another Scotsway podcast, and it's the latest of our Glasgow Film Festival podcasts. And I'm joined by filmmaker Heather Kroll. Hello, Heather. Hello. And we're going to talk about your film, Your Old Feather, as it should be said, which is such a delightful film. Um, how do you explain it to people when they ask about the film? Well, it's, uh, it's, yes, it's a tricky one. I mean, it is, um, it's a personal film in so Ooh. many ways about my relationship with my dad, but also about my dad. But then the film is about so much more. They, it is a personal film, but then it's also um, a film about a, a way of living, a, a way of, the, of um, a, a way of life in, in a, in a remote, town um it's got a sort of a it opens up political uh themes of environmentalism yeah and um and all sorts so while it's very personal it's also um i think uh, uh it opens up into all sorts of broader themes and so it is it's hard to explain and then when people see it they are a really, I mean, incredible response that I've had from the film so far. People have just told me how much it resonated with them. It made them think of their own father, their own family, their own upbringing. And uh, so, yes, it's, um, I think it does have, uh, has it connects well with a lot of people once they've seen it. Yeah, because I think there's a, I think sometimes people think, oh, a film about your own dad, you know. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. I, it, I tried to make sure it wasn't an indulgent film. So, um, and to make sure that it is something that speaks to a broader audience. Yeah, and you've got this incredible footage because it seemed to me that your family seemed to film almost everything at a time when it was quite unusual to do that. Yeah, so, well, I started um, studying um, film in the late 80s, early 90s. At, um, doc I was studying documentary. And I did used to film Dad a little bit every now and again um, in that time. Not very often. It's funny that you think that we filmed a lot because mm -hmm. actually um, that is just the sign of how great the editor was to make it look like that. But she pretty much... Uh, used every minute that I had. <laughs> I'm right, there brilliant. Lot, <laughs> there wasn't a lot from the early years, but she was so, my editor, Tanya Nimi, was so incredible. She would find these little golden moments that were only even a few seconds in old footage for, that I had, which I miraculously found in a box in the shed, and it was all old VHS tapes and things like that. I mean, how I even still had it 30 years later, I don't know. Um, but she used to find these little snippets and then say, oh, we can weave that in here and there. And so it does make it look like we filmed a lot more than we did. Um, and I did film my dad when he was working as yeah. a doctor in the hospital only for a couple of days I filmed there in the 90s. Um, in the early 90s and then but again Tanya was so great at the editing it made it look like I had a lot more than I really had. It's so interesting because I had the impression that your dad basically never had a camera out of his face but that's it wasn't the case it was just. No. 
funny. I, I did, um, in the 90s, I won, with a short film, I won a camera, which was a, a mini DV camera with a little um, flip-out screen. And I, I won that camera at a short film competition and I gave it to my dad because he wanted to film the chimneys in the steelworks. Yeah, yeah. And it was, my, it was to my amazement 30 years later that he told me he'd been filming the chimneys all these years um, uh, since that time that I gave him the camera. <laughs> and so... That was the other thing that I found, um, you know, I found the tapes that I'd shot years ago of Dad, but I also found his tapes that he'd shot over the years of the chimneys since I gave him this camera. And, um, yeah, so, and then obviously his letters were a massive part of the film as well. Yeah. So there were treasure troves that we found um, that were pieced together whether it be the old footage or whether it be the footage he filmed of the chimneys, which was quite amazing how many different sunsets and sunrises and different days he'd filmed the chimneys uh, when I played back the tapes. And then obviously his massive treasure trove of letters as well. He was a man of obsessions, it seemed. It wasn't just enough for him to take one film of the chimneys. He had to do it multiple times wasn't just enough to write a few letters. There's screeds of letters <laughs> everywhere. But also, and we'll come on to that, is it wasn't just enough for him to plant a couple of trees. He almost had to replant the whole of the town. Can you tell us a bit about his obsession and his nature? Yeah, he didn't like to waste one minute. I mean, he would never um, be idle. He would no. never watch TV, for example, except uh, match of the day uh, we used to watch the soccer or football as you call yeah. it um and he was he loved yeah he, he loved watching football um but uh he was never he wouldn't have a clue what happened on television ever I think Zed cars he used to say that was the last time he watched tv was you know in the 60s I think yeah. Zed cars and so he just, he never wasted a minute. Any minute he was doing, it was like writing letters, reading books, planting trees, building wooden tables, building stone walls or delivering babies at the hospital. Um, he found it amazing that people, um, I mean, he never had a mobile phone or anything mm -hmm. like that. And he just couldn't believe the the screen time that everybody was waiting. He just he just saw that as a waste. So yeah. every minute was precious, and every minute was used. And um, I remember one asking him not not long before he died about just what does he think? You know, what would what would he think about himself? How would he sort of like to be remembered or whatever? And he said, well. As long as I was useful, that's all I want to be is useful. And it, that was so much how he lived. He just wanted to make sure that he was useful every minute, every everything he did. Um, you know, he um, he lived in a, he would never be, he, was, he would be completely unaware of the whole being present, mo you know, the movement yeah. about being in the moment. And, and being present, but actually that's exactly what he was. He was like if you were sitting here with him talking, you would know that he was with you completely and totally with you and in a conversation he was very curious and very yeah. interested in everybody and um, he was very present and he was never distracted and he was right there with you. And 
Um, and in the way he was right there, whatever he was doing, whether it was building the tables or, and of course it was not enough to build the tables, but he had to make the planks himself and, um, you know, and then uh, with stone walls, he had to go collect the stones from any which way. Like he's, if anyone was digging up their garden, Wyala is built on stones. So there would be lots of stones and he'd have to go and collect them. And then he'd build a wall. So it was never, he would never like to go to a shop and buy something. He, he had to try and discover it and forage it in some way. And with the tree planting, I mean, that was an obsession that was, you know, decades long. Mm. And also nobody knew he was doing it. So, I love that. yeah. He just did it as his, um, uh, daily ritual or well and so he he used to get the he wouldn't buy seedlings or anything he would pick the gum nuts and actually germinate them himself in the oven and then he'd have to germ and then they'd grow the little seedlings in our back garden recycled old um, fruit cans and dog food cans and things and then we'd have to go and when I was young he yeah I used to go out with him a lot in the morning and because Wyala was uh, a dry desert dusty town um, you'd have to water it a lot morning and night and we'd have to take the water in buckets to the to the trees there was no hoses so he always planted trees you know in it seemed very strange. When I was 10 years old doing this, I was like, what are we doing and why are we doing this? And But then, you know, when, when he got diagnosed with very advanced cancer with not long to go and I, and, um, um, I was, you know, in my 40s and I got back to look after him and he said, right, let's go plant trees. It was like I couldn't, I just, I suddenly remembered that's what we used to do. And I'd sort of forgotten that we did it. But then I remembered, oh, this is what we used to do when, when I was young. And I think I have a brother and a sister, but for some reason I was always the one that was doing the trees with him. And and so it was amazing when he was nearly 80 to be going out again, planting trees with him. And he even planted trees up until probably three or four days before he died. Um, and I was thinking, who's going to water these trees? But, you know, all of his lovely friends in Wyala have have told me in the last seven years they've been watering him and that even those final trees that he planted are, are, are still growing and alive. And now when you go to Wyala, because he planted thousands and thousands of trees, the 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 whole skyline and the landscape of the town um, is, you know, his mark of his trees is very, very visible and that's why when I was doing the film I was lucky enough that drone cameras started to be invent like in yeah. coming out, you know, at the time that I was making the films, um, it would have been impossible to, years ago to get a crane shot or something. But, so, you know, in the last few years drone photography became so more accessible and, so I was able to capture, I think, um, the way that my dad has left such an impact on the landscape of the town. Absolutely. And to go back to that idea of not wasting anything, that included water. You're standing, you know, saving the water from your shower, from washing the dishes, so it could be taken to water the plants. Absolutely. You know, my, he was extreme. There's no doubt about it. I mean... He would he would make at least four or five cups of tea from a tea bag. Uh, he would re, if he sliced some bread, he 
he would get the crumbs and put them in. He'd collect them all in a bag so that, you know, when he was going to crumb some fish down the line in a couple of weeks, he'd be collecting his crumbs. I mean, it is extreme, <laughs> extreme well, recycling. I have to say the most extreme for me was the recycling of the tissues. Oh, yeah. Well, that was just insane. Like, that was something that came quite late in life. And as um, it wasn't something we all lived Yeah. But um, it came about, I remember one day someone said to him, oh, you know, um, what do you think of microwaves? And he said, oh, well, the only reason I ever use a microwave is to reheat my cup of tea or microwave my tissue. And I was like, what? Because I didn't live at home anymore when I heard him say that, so I'd never seen it. Uh, but then when I moved back to look after him in his final year, I, 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 yeah, I witnessed the microwaving of the tissue quite often. <laughs> That's incredible. But actually, this is a man who really did leave his legacy on the town, not only by changing the landscape, but um, he worked in obstetrics. You know, he delivered children. He delivered a lot of the people who went on to then have their own kids and all of that. I and mean, it's quite a legacy to leave. Amazing. He's, he was delivering babies in that town for 40 years or so, um, more, I think, 45. And... He was, even towards the end, he was delivering babies where he had delivered the mother and the grandmother, so, you know, three generations of the family. And um, it's, you know, the regional um, health care in Australia, it's really tough. Like not many um, specialists go and live in re remote desert. They, they get serviced by doctors that fly in and fly out. They don't live there. Yeah. Um, whereas my dad was very committed to the community from the day he arrived and um, he really uh, loved to, he, and he didn't choose to go and live in a, um, he could have gone and made a lot of money in Sydney or Melbourne, but he chose to live in a very working class town with no one using private healthcare at all. It was very much a working class town and it was much more for him about being useful and servicing uh, you know, serving the town and delivering the boat, giving the women the health care they deserved, even though they were in a remote town. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I did much later in my life, you know, from not from when we were young, we didn't know this, but much later when I um, travelled to visit my auntie in Glasgow and I discovered that he'd actually trained to be a priest and lived in Rome for all those years and, there's a part of me, I think, that I see there's a parallel how he served the town was a little bit priest-like. You know, he, he wanted to serve the community in that priest-like way but not as a priest, yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a doctor that delivered the babies. And, um, and, yeah, so, I mean, he was full of eccentricities as well. I mean, people come up to me in the street all the time. If ever I go back to my town, they was telling me, they go into great detail about their birth without even, you know, as much of an introduction. They go dive straight into the, these gruesome details. But then they've also got great stories of, you know, Dad with his um, canary yellow bicycle that he used to ride around. Yeah, he used to cycle up and down in the hospital and you know, in the wards and, um, you know, beat, drive around in his crazy old Volvo. So he was always trying to make people laugh and, 
he wanted to bring a bit of joy into the hospital and because I think, you know, people think hospitals are a bit depressing. So he was always doing crazy antics in the hospital and making everyone laugh. So he's a pretty unforgettable kind of character. Absolutely. And, and, and the car itself, it's the closest I've seen to a real-life clown car where you shut the door and the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> but he's still like, no, it's okay, it's fine. Tell us a little bit about Wyala itself, because the town is almost a character in its own right. Yeah, so it's um, it's a steel town in the desert where the desert meets the sea. I mean, it's a phenomenal setting, really. Um, it was a company town that um, uh, BHP sort of invented in the 30s or 40s, and they decided that the that the um, the port or the the water there was deep enough for big ships. So they did a shipyard. So it was a, a combination of a steelworks and a shipyard, shipbuilding town. Um, and, you know, there was a, in the in the 60s and 70s, I mean, the place was full of uh, people from all over the world. I mean, you know, Yugoslav, people had come from, you know, well, there was a lot of Glaswegians because there was a lot of people from shipyards and things like that. But there was people from all through Eastern Europe and, um all through India and, and, and so it was very multi, it was actually a very multicultural town when it was booming because it was, it was working class but very booming town and um, because everyone had a job, everyone was working either in the steelworks or the shipyards. But over the years, obviously, that was um, the shipyards went first in probably seven, 1978 or not, 79, and then, um, uh, after that, the, the steelworks jobs, you know, were shrinking and shrinking and to the point that, you know, when Dad was dying, the steelworks actually went into receivership. So there was something quite amazing about Dad dying as well as the town sort of dying at the same time. Um, but it's, um, yeah, classic sort of a bit like a mining town, I guess, you know, yeah. towns that boomed in the in working-class towns that boomed in the 60s and 70s and then really went into decline. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, it's sort of a Wyala. Australians kind of think of it as like just like totally the worst place in Australia. <laughs> um my dad had, you know, he had a great sense of social justice and he was very strongly committed to um, that sort of fighting for the underdog and uh, making sure that um, uh, he, he always felt Wyala didn't deserve its reputation but also that it deserved more support from the government because uh, it was often overlooked and... And you know, he even in uh, in his letters, he used to write letters to because it's a very hot and dry, dusty, no rain. You know, um, he used to write letters in the 1980s, you know, to try and convince governments to set up solar farms and wind farms there. Um, and it was yeah, not quite ironic that it, now that Dad has passed away, that is, you know, not long after he died, they started building the solar okay. farms. The wind farms there, so uh, forty years after he's written the letters, but um, it, it, it's it, he was always trying to fight for more for Wyala, and he he really loved it. And his love for Wyala was sort of you know by, regarded by many as a bit like over the top because most people, especially in the rest of Australia, are a bit like dismissive of Wyala. Um, 
So, but it's a great, it was a great town to grow up and we loved it. So. It made me think. That's, why I, that's why I want, that's why I wanted to portray it in, in a beautiful, like in a way, because it's often portrayed in a really negative light in the yeah. media. And, and a lot of people from Wyala or people who have lived in Wyala who don't live there anymore, um, who saw the film said that they found the aerial shots of the town, you know, almost quite emotional, like almost moving, sort of tugging on your heartstrings because it was sort of like celebrating Wyala as a beautiful place that it, it isn't very often celebrated. It made me think, actually, of uh, your dad's hometown, Glasgow, um, because it had a reputation, certainly pre-1990, of being a place where people didn't want to go to. It had a terrible reputation. Yeah. My my gran, who was uh, from the borders, whenever she came up to kind of visit us, still thought, oh, I'm going to be mugged in the street, or I'm going to be, you know, there was that kind of reputation. And he has this pride, uh, which I think uh, he wants to make where he is better, rather than go somewhere else, which might be easier yeah. or more beautiful. Yeah. So, no, no, we're going to stay where we are and make this place better. And I have to say, I think both your mum, your dad and your mum, this kind of, I would typify it as a Scottish kind of sheer bloody mindedness. No, we at one point it's like, no, we, this is where we are and we'll make it yeah. better. We'll make it good for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, my mum's, well, she's, just a, an anchor for my dad really yeah. she was the she was dad was a bit of a rudderless ship in many ways I thought or sort of um you know he was off with the he was a dreamer and he didn't really know much about the day-to-day um administration of life uh whereas mum you know kept everything going for all of us and and for him and um but they had a beautiful you know just a beautiful relationship and that was and and you know, they lived in this remote town and they never hankered for it. They never missed. They just sat down, uh, sitting down for dinner was just all about talking about what's going on in the world or what happened that day or the politics. There was never any gossip or anything like that. So they're very, um, yeah, they just arrived and there they lived and, um, you know, loved it. And mum, um I think some people feel surprised that my mum, you know, just was willing to even move to such a place. But she was happy there and and happy to happy to go there. Yeah, it seemed that wherever they went, as long as they were doing it together, then that was enough. Yeah. And they would do it, which was <laughs> absolutely lovely. Um, what's interesting for me was you mentioned that you, he was training to be a priest, and there is that kind of um, well, that's something you only discovered later in life, isn't it? When you went home and saw these pictures. Yeah, And uh, the kind of two jobs, if you like, almost rub up against each other. And you do touch upon that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I did, this comes to the um, amazing editor again. I mean, I did not think that there was any way that I could fit reference about Dad living in Rome and training to be a priest into this film. Like it just, I just felt like, well, I had this footage of um, filming him when he was, ill and dying and then I had the earlier footage and then I had letters but how was I going to tell something about him training to be a priest and so on but one we found in the interview um him talking about um being Catholic and being an obstetrician and um and you know and doing abortions and just talking about that whole challenge of um uh well working in obstetrics, doing abortions, 
and then how could you continue to be you know catholic and 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 the, and the questioning of that um all the time and so the editor was just yeah she just came to me one day with this whole inter, interwoven scene about dad's um talking about that those challenges as well as bringing in the whole story about him going off to rome and being a priest so i mean that was yeah that was i, I just didn't imagine that we were ever going to get that part of the story in uh she was amazing like that she also did a similar um intercutting with when dad um really was the moment of dad being diagnosed um and intercutting that with news television news stories of the steelworks going into receivership and the steelworks possibly closing down and so she really um she took pieces that quite complex pieces of storytelling and, and, and would produce these amazing intercut pieces that um, allowed you, on, that took you on an emotional journey. I mean, even in there's a moment um, when we, find, we found the letter that he wrote his mother in mm-hmm. the 1950s when he's leaving Rome and, I mean, it, the way that she's done, the way she uses that letter, it's actually really moving and mm-hmm. him leaving um, and leaving Rome and obviously leaving his after seven years of training to be a priest, he's not going to follow through with that. And, I mean, I'm totally an atheist and I, we don't have, I just had no, I just found the way she edited that was yeah. so moving. It was like, oh, you know, to see that someone's changing, majorly changing the direction in their life and and obviously his mum who always would have loved him to still be a priest uh would have would have been very sad to get that letter and I just you know as I was in awe of the editor being able to include those pieces and they never felt didactic or they they felt emotionally connected to the story yeah well it was like another um, generation, it was him almost referring to his own parents, and as you say, maybe this was their mm. big dream for him was to, to you know, become a priest, and, and that was saying, no, that dream is now over, and do something else. That's it. So yeah, I met his um, childhood friend Ronnie O'Connor, and when I went to see him, I wasn't sure why. I mean. I was just thought, I'll just film Ronnie, I'd just film Roke. I knew that Dad had written letters to Roke, but I didn't, I never expected that we were going to find those letters. And then when I got to his house, he said, oh, I've kept all your Dad's letters over the last 40 years and they're here in the bottom drawer of this bureau. <laughs> wow. Um, and I just, yeah, I couldn't believe that. And he, um, well, I, I scanned, I interviewed him on camera and then I scanned his letters and he said to me, oh, can I have them back because they're, you know, sentimental and he likes to reread them. And I said, of course. And then about two years later we got work, we, we, had, we had a message that Roke had passed away. Oh, right. And, and I, I, uh, his niece called my mother and said that she, and I said, oh, when you clear the flat out, you know, if you there's those letters in the in the in the bureau, and she said, "Oh no, we got rid of the bureau." <laughs> oh. But but luckily, I'd scanned them all. But they were beautiful. They were all handwritten in the um, old aerogram in the old like in the old blue um, paper. But I'd luckily I'd scanned them all, and then 
again, the editor um, just found a way to weave in all the letters. And originally the animator was going to just um, animate mainly my childhood memories. Yeah. But then as we started to use the letters more, we realised we wanted to animate the letters as well. Um, so that was great. And then I met Gary McNair who um, I met him in Edinburgh at the Fringe and he was doing this play called A Gambler's Guide to Dying, which was I about saw this. Yep. Yeah. And and so I asked him, would you, if I ever make this film, would you be the voice of my dad's letters? And so... Uh. When um, when the in when COVID uh, hit and Melbourne was in lockdown and you know people were in lockdown all over the world and I'd been trying to edit this film for five years and not really having much luck and the editor that I really wanted who I'd asked years ago and she said she wanted to do it but she was heavily booked out and she mm-hmm. rang me up in about April and said did you ever make that documentary? And I said, no, I'm still trying. She said, well, I'm in lockdown and all my films have been cancelled, so why don't you send me the drives? So I sent her all the footage and she edited it in lockdown in Melbourne. Gary was recording the letters in his shed in in Scotland, the animated. So everyone was completely separated and in lockdown. We weren't um, ever together and then... Um, you know, the sound mixing was happening in a bit. So I could never, as the director, I was never almost in the room with anyone because we weren't allowed to. But yeah. but luckily the creative, yeah, everyone was amazing at the element they were doing. Yeah. And they just were given the creative freedom. I was never leaning over them. And, um, and the musician, the composer, the musical director, she was she moved from London to Adelaide uh, to be with her new partner, and she um, so she was available. And you know, it was all it was all because of COVID. I mean, she would have never moved here if it wasn't COVID. <laughs> so, in a funny way, the film is only um, it's only there because of the pandemic. I have to say, I mean, those are two elements that stuck out to me. The animation is lovely, particularly, you know, you and your dad and the dog in the front seat in the car. It's just fantastic. And also the use of music, because you've got um, traditional, you've got some jazz, mm. you've got some kind of more mm. atmospheric stuff. And then at the end, you've got a lovely rendition of Caledonia, which you know, almost brought me to tears listening to it. Um, uh, yeah, you can tell that every aspect of this film is made with love and, and care. Which is yeah, great. yeah, and I think um, well, people um, have really lo- commented on that a lot in terms of you know that's I think where it becomes very heartfelt to the audience members individually um, is just the the amount of love that is in the film and also how much it makes them think of their own fathers and their own family and. Um, I, I did think a little bit when I was filming Dad when he was really going downhill and he only had a few weeks left and he was getting very frail and I thought, should I even film him? You yeah. know, I'd just have a camera sitting on the shelf or something. He wouldn't really even, it wouldn't be like in his face. But, but you know, people have said to me, oh, I'm so glad that you did film that because um, for anyone who's, cared for someone um, right till the end like that, you know there's this quiet dignity of when people know their time's up and 
They don't, there's no drama, there's no panic, it's just happening. But it's such a privilege to be there with them and look after them. And, you know, my dad was just trying to wring out every single minute of life. Like he didn't want to just lie back and die. He wanted to still do things. And to see that on screen is, um, it's not very often seen. And no. that's something a lot of people have told me that they've looked after their own parents um, or other friends or something and there's something about those last few weeks of someone's life um and I'm just yeah like there was a couple of moments that I thought oh I don't know if I should include this mainly for my mum I I wasn't sure um like when the ambulance uh came uh you know and mum's looking very worried and sort of pacing behind and and obviously my mum was a nurse so she met dad in Glasgow um as a midwife so she's a she had this she was half in the nurse medical mode and half in you know the wife losing yeah. her husband mode and um so she'd be sort of half practical but I could see her emotions as well um but that's yeah that was one thing she did say oh the the scene when we when the ambulance come and, and then we just go out the gate and then and then they take him out the gate she said oh that that was the that was probably the hardest moment I think for Mum to see. But other than that, it was um, I think beautiful to be able to share that time on screen of what it's like to just nurse and be with someone that you've loved all your life as they as they're in their final days. Yeah, well, I think it's absolutely a beautiful film and a. It does kind of resonate. There's so many universal themes in it. And to take what's such a personal individual subject and do that, I think, is something pretty special. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the film. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope it, um, it, it, you know, hopefully it will be loved in the Glasgow Film Festival screenings. I'm sure it will. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.